You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer, director, and producer, Ava DuVernay. Over the past 15 years, Ava has become something of an institution in Hollywood. She's made films like Salma and A Wrinkle in Time, created original television like When They See Us and Queen Sugar, documentaries like 13th and This is the Life, and those are just the projects she's directed. She's also made it her mission to amplify work by other directors of color especially women, through a narrative change collective called Array. She founded the organization in 2011, and they've since created a quartet of mission-driven entities. A film distribution arm, a content company, a programming and production hub, and a non-profit group that works to advance social justice through art. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can visit their site at ArrayNow.com. That's ArrayNow.com. The aims of Array, and by extension Ava, are something we spend a lot of time discussing in the back half of this conversation, especially as we get into diversity in Hollywood and where she believes this industry is headed after the past year of strikes. But we begin today with Ava's new film, Origin, 
It's a creative adaptation of Isabel Wilkerson's best-selling book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. One half of the film, like the book, explores the hidden caste system that shapes our society, a cyclical, rigid hierarchy of human rankings that have been passed down knowingly and sometimes unknowingly from one generation to the next. And yet, the other half of the picture is a lot less academic. It's more of an emotionally charged story of a writer played by ingenue Ellis Taylor grappling with tremendous personal loss while somehow simultaneously giving life to what would become this book, Cast. I've never seen a film like Origin. I've actually seen it twice now, and each time I'm amazed by how intimate and epic it is. A blend of reality and cinematic drama, part memoir, part historical essay. It is, above all else though, a movie to be reckoned with and a movie to be seen. A film that can be seen, in fact, in theaters starting next week, Friday, January 19th, in theaters across the country. If you'd like to find tickets at a theater near you, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com. Ava was one of the first people I invited on the program back in 2016. Like many good things, sometimes they take a minute. And so as we were thinking about how to start 2024, how to ask questions that we need to ask, how to offer some answers that only she could provide, I could think of no better guest than Ava DuVernay. I hope you enjoy this very special episode and uh, wishing you all a happy and healthy start to 2024. This is Ava DuVernay. I want to get this right. The only thing you know about the show (laughs) is that the person you are sitting across from is someone that you usually see two tequila sodas in. Is that right? That is accurate. (laughs) I have no idea where I am or what I'm doing, but I love it because I like you. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, (laughs) but but I met a very, very nice person at a party, and then I met him again at this party, and he said, why don't you come on my podcast? I was like, I'll come. I think Coleman Domingo grabbed you and said, you really you need, need to, to do, do this. this person's podcast, and I, that he had so much fun, and it was such a great conversation, and so. It's much better when it comes from him than me. I don't know. Yours was pretty good, too, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy to be invited. Ava DuVernay, welcome to the show. Come on, pronunciation. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this is a long time in the making. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like I'm at the end of a long day today and that I'm at the start of a year that I have high hopes for. I have high hopes for it, too, although I'm cautious to even say that out loud because mm. we're in uh, scary, scary, a little times. bit uncharted territory. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of uncharted territory, can we start with this movie of yours? Okay. Um, the film is called Origin. It's an adaptation of Isabel Wilkerson's 2020 book, Cast, that argues that Trayvon Martin, the Holocaust, slavery, and the mistreatment of Dalits in India are all part of the same system of global oppression. My first question, when are you going to make a film about serious subjects? (laughs) Well, that description makes the film sound really stodgy and kind of academic. Okay, let me do it better then. (laughs) To capture all of that in a film, though, 
is a tall order. Even your friend and longtime collaborator, actor David Oyelowo, described the book as unadaptable. So I want to start here. As a filmmaker and former publicist, how did you manage to adapt this book? And now that you've made it, how do you pitch it to an audience? Well, the, the truth is, it's the same truth for both. I was making a film about a woman on a journey. She was on an emotional and intellectual journey to uncover things about herself and about the world. That's way better than my description. <laughs> and when I broke it down to that, just as a, as, a, as a storyteller, as a writer, it had to be broken down to that. Because that is action, that is emotion, that is something to do, right? Big concepts of, of caste and different global systems is nothing I can actually do at my desk. Mm. But what I can do is write a story about a woman who's searching, who's striving, who's struggling. Mm. And in the process, she writes a book about big global things. So how do you understand those big global things now? This was obviously Wilkerson's theory, but you've transmuted it and put it into a film. How do you describe her theory now? In adapting the book into a film and being inspired by parts of the film, I mean, it's not a true adaptation that every scene in the film is in the book. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's only about 40% of the film is the book. That's why I didn't call it cast. I called it origin because it would be disingenuous. It's not the book. But I never feel comfortable in being kind of a proxy for Isabel Wilkerson and being able to concretely state what she puts in a 496-page book. Uh, that, that, that's not my goal. My goal was to take from the book the things that struck me and the things that moved me and the things that I remembered and will take with me. And to put those things in a film and then wrap it in a journey of a woman who's trying to traverse tragedy and trauma and get to some kind of triumph in her life. Mm. My understanding of cast is that it is a, a, it's a hierarchy. It's placing... At the center of our society, this idea that some people are better than others mm. and that that contributes to who has power and status in, in our world. And that those uh, decisions about who's better than another person are completely based on random attributes like the color of your skin, the way your different body parts might work or not, quote unquote, work, your gender, what you like to do. Those random attributes are assigned a place of value in our society, and they determine who you are, quote-unquote, in this world. Did that dissection of the caste system, is that what grabbed you most? Yeah, I mean, it was that, that idea of kind of a, a unifying principle to all of the isms, something that allowed me to organize it all in my mind. Right. And to do that, it might require renaming, it might require redefining things that I feel, things that I've experienced, mm. and not always call it racism or sexism, which is the primary lens through which I work is my gender and my race. But to think about those things in a different way, at a different level, and, and call it by a different name to allow me to open up my ideas about what they even are. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot. There's a lot there. But longer form stuff, questions that I don't have the answer to. So ask them in a piece. I don't write questions. I write answers. Questions like what? Like, why does a Latino man deputize himself to stalk a black boy to protect an all-white community? What is that? The racist bias I want you to explore, excavate for the readers. We call everything racism. What does it even mean anymore? It's the default. <laughs> When did that happen? <laughs> Brett, or 
Okay. So wait, so you, you're saying that, that he isn't a racist? No, I'm not saying that he's not a racist. I'm questioning why is everything racist? I would say this is a film in which we watch someone do a lot of thinking, mm-hmm. a lot of pondering, a lot of taking missteps that we all take in trying to put together writing or art or whatever the theory may be. We don't often see that with someone who looks like your central character. And I'm wondering because last year, one of the biggest box office successes was about a physicist working at breakneck speed to create an atomic bomb. Of course, I'm talking about Oppenheimer. And that film is in a long line of films about men on grand intellectual quests, men on a mission to uncover something for someone Really, movies about men explaining things. Your film is like if Kathleen Collins received $38 million in 1982 to make Losing Ground. And so now that we're here, I'm curious, how challenging was it to convince studios to fund the type of movie that has historically made them a lot of money? Movies that are generally with white men at the center. Well, I love you for the Kathleen Collins reference beautiful movie by a black woman filmmaker who's no longer with us who made a small independent film decades ago that that most people don't know but it had a black woman intellectual as a lead and searching in in, in a kind of similar way yeah, I think. absolutely um yes and i'm and i'm glad that you mentioned oppenheimer because i think you know those protagonists in that film and in origin have a lot in common they're thinking they're on a intellectual quest as you as you said and they are striving, they are reaching, you know, the conflict is internal. The obstacles are not Thanos. Mm. Uh, I believe that's his name. Could be Thanos. Oh, Thanos. See, someone is just I really, smirking at know, me right now. The thing is, I thought you said Theranos, and I was like, wait, <laughs> the Elizabeth Holmes? It's like, this is going in a different direction. Wow. I mean, both hoodwinked us in other ways. Facts. But, yeah. Facts. But yes, so I think I think the, 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 there is a similarity there. You know, audiences and filmgoers are used to seeing those kinds of films. They're mm-hmm. not just seeing those, used to seeing those kinds of films occupied by someone like Aunt New Ellis Taylor or being mm-hmm. told by someone like me. And so I think that's fascinating and fun and exciting to have new voices, you know, uh, kind of traversing in this same old territory, which is person thinking. Pitching it must have been easy then. No, no, I, I didn't pitch it. I didn't want to put myself through the blank stares across the table when I told someone that I wanted to make a movie about cast. <laughs> That's not the hit pitch in town. Can we understand this, though? Because it it was at Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. It was going to be for them. They took a minute, maybe too many minutes. And that was in part because you felt like this was a movie that had to come out by 2024, in early 2024. So explain to me what happened and why it had to come out now. I was very adamant that it be out now. I want the film to contribute to a a national conversation about where the heck we are. And where do you think that is? Our eyes are closed on purpose. We're fatigued. We're, We're friggin' tired and disenchanted. And it's easier to just roll your eyes and say something to your friend and keep it moving. And we can't. We can't do that. 
And so the idea that there might be a set of ideas in here, new words in here, new things to think about, something that ignites you and kind of Mm. wakes you up to think, you know what, let me push a little harder. Let me ask the second question. Let me rethink how I'm, I'm approaching where we are right now. It was imperative. That's why I make I make movies. That's why I made this film. So why have it come out in the fall of next year mm-hmm. when it can't, doesn't even have a possibility of moving a needle? I want it to be this year, all this year, so that it can, you know, it's a small film, so it's going to have take time to make its way and be shared. And so that it could possibly have some real cultural resonance. It sounds like you had a moral imperative that putting it out on November 18th of 2024 <laughs> Wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to you. It would probably be really good for the marketing campaign. And that was the suggestion from several studios who liked the film. And what do you mean? It's time to events that feel crispy and on edge and on target for what the film is. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the suggestion to put it out in the fall of next year. But that serves a marketing campaign for a movie and the bottom line for some profit and some views and streams that doesn't serve what my goal and purpose was, which was to actually make a film that changed people's minds and hopefully got us thinking in a different way. I want to stick on that because in the film, Isabel says, I write answers, not questions. You, Ava, I think, write questions, not answers. Is that fair? Yes, I agree. What are those questions to you in this moment? Gosh, the the questions are, now that you know, what will you do? Hmm. We can't say Brian we don't Stevenson know what's... at the end of the third. Yeah, end of 13th. Come on, research! That's the last line in 13th. Yeah. How can we keep our eyes closed? So the hope is that, you know, this year in particular, when so much is on the line, that people, uh, before it's too late, start to look up. I guess I'm trying to get at, given that your eyes are open, what do you see? The thing that I see that is the most urgent to me is the apathy of all of us. Apathy about what? Everything. Women don't have the rights to decide what's happening with their own bodies. Mm. Um, It was a good two weeks of outrage. And then that slipped away for the majority of the country in terms of an urgent... You're talking about when Dobbs was overturned? I'm talking about the idea that when I look back on history and I see, and I know that the civil rights movement was a years-long movement, Mm. that people said, I will not ride these buses, I will not go in these spaces, I will sacrifice my livelihood, my life, to act according to what I believe. That collective, everyone together to say, this will not work for us, Mm. changed things. We can't even work together on IG for two weeks to sustain, <laughs> you know, some outrage. So it, it's um, it's widespread. It's across so many issues. And what when it comes down to it, when you ask me, what is the thing that really bothers me? It, what bothers me is that enough people don't seem bothered. In 2020, when a lot of people had their quote-unquote racial reckoning for what was about two weeks, like you just said, you talked to Angela Davis for the fall issue of Vanity Fair. And she said to you, I like the term John Berger used, demonstrations are rehearsals for revolution. We demonstrated, we posted on social media. Has the revolution come? (laughs) You asked me with a straight face. (laughs) You didn't tell me you were a good actor. Um, Yeah, some rehearsals aren't good. Some rehearsals, uh, the director has to say, we're coming back tomorrow and we're doing this again. And so, no, not quite there. There's a line in this film around the scene set in 1933 Germany. 
It says something like, when you burn books, you're not a long way from burning men. This book that you've adapted, Cast, has been banned in states like Texas because it, quote, and this is, this is real, it, quote, causes discomfort, guilt, anguish, and or psychological distress because of race or sex. To whom, it does not say, but I think we can figure that one out. How have you processed the last couple of years of rhetoric around book banning in, in this country? What is being taken off the shelf? I process it in a, in a shock, awe, and a disbelief that we are allowing it to happen. Like when you ask me these questions, I, I put it back on us, and I participate in that. We are allowing these things to happen. We're allowing these things to be said and go unchallenged. We're allowing laws to backslide, rhetoric to heighten, lies to be told that become codified and become the way that we live and will live. This is how it happens. You know, when you study history, you can look at Nazi Germany and you can think, how did it happen? And it happened just like this. You're overwhelmed by it all. You've got this this tyrant. You don't take him seriously. Then all of a sudden, gosh, this is getting serious. And whoa, I'm afraid they're going to come after me. And it's better to be quiet. And you know what? I'm just tired. Let me just live my life. Someone else will take care of it. And you look up and, you know, their ash has fallen on your your front porch and where's my neighbor? Hmm. It is a process that scares me. It is a process that I think I'm not alone in at all. And you ask the question, what do you do? And we have to ask that question of each other and we have to answer it. Hmm. We have to freaking answer it. And so I don't know what to do. I'm just a filmmaker. But my answer to it is let me make a film about it, asking those questions and hope that more of us decide to answer. I think if someone goes to the theater to watch this film or if they watch it at home eventually. Mm-hmm. I think they'll have a hard time continuing or being part of that slow march toward apathy. I do think it does upset you. And I think everyone should see it and should be able to see it and should be able to like it and not like it, yeah. which is kind of what we're talking about, is this inability to allow people to decide and to have choices. And I just want to go back a little bit. Because choice, I think, is vital in understanding how you came to be as an artist. It's just my theory. Just go with me on this. You grew up in Compton, and it was uh, there that you were first exposed to all kinds of art by your aunt, Denise. This is a woman who worked as a night nurse so that she could spend her days as a patron of the arts. And each week, on a particular day after school, She would introduce you to what your mother lovingly referred to as some, quote, white shit. (laughs) My mother never said white shit because my mother doesn't use profanity. But it was. It was films that my mother was not interested in seeing. My mother's not interested in seeing films that did not have people that she could connect with and that looked like her. But those were Denise's kinds of films. We're going to be out of Africa. We're going to be Kramer versus Kramer. It's a, it's a Sophie's Choice. It's a Meryl Streep <laughs> marathon. I loved it. And those are the kinds of things we would, we would see. And Choices. Enjoy. Yeah. When you look back on that time with her, with your aunt, what were those conversations and experiences like? I was a kid and she was my aunt, my auntie, you know. And it was just really about connection and being together. The fact that she would take the time 
to, you know, share things with me, share share the movie. It's not that much of a deep conversation you can have with a kid about West Side Story. major films, right? But she'd ask me what I saw and what I was interested in and what I liked about it, and mm-hmm. I got to talk more than anything else. <laughs> and it was really just being together and sharing that because we were really the only two people in the family who really had that love of movies. I think she saw in me that I really loved it, and so she decided to feed it. Maybe the better question is, what was it like to be heard Mm, as a kid? That's a beautiful question. I never had a problem with that in the family because I grew up with a group of people who, you know, it was just a beautiful family. It was my mom, my mom, my dad, my aunt Denise, and my grandma. Mm. And uh, it was the it was you know four adults looking after for a long time me and my two sisters and then my two brothers later and it was just a beautiful balance like enough adults for enough kids so that everyone had uh you know had had an ear had a shoulder their own avatar yeah, yeah okay good a little bit i want to understand them what a saturday looked like for you as a kid in the morning you and your sisters would do what on saturday mornings play barbies and what happened there You get up, you're still in your pajamas, you know that it's Saturday, it's fantastic. You have a bowl of cereal, you break out the Barbies. I'm the oldest, so I got the actual only Barbie car we had, the Corvette. (laughs) And we would play for hours and hours and hours. I'm going to go cook dinner. It's time to go to work. It's time to And they would go and literally play out a whole conversations. And it's like a soap opera. Mm. Very boring and done by seven, eight, nine-year-olds. That sounds great. Storytelling, really. Speaking of storytelling... Saturday night, in a different kind of Barbie dolling up sort of way, your mom would dress the three of you up, you and your two sisters, and then go to grocery stores or a store near you. What happened there? Yeah, that's the story of my first short film, the first thing I ever made. Saturday Night Live. Which I can't believe you know, and I'm really scared of your research skills at this point. Unfortunately, the film is disappeared. I will be finding it. <laughs> you will not be finding it. I will it, be finding sir. it. I, I will be. I will be. And I have skills and it is gone. I, I am going to keep searching. <laughs> okay. I'm glad, though, that you even know the name of it. I'm hoping at the end of this, one day you'll invite me to watch it. <laughs> and I'll never speak of it. I'll sign an NDA. That's so funny. I haven't seen it in, in a decade. I'm I should, dying to I watch this with it. you. I should look at it. We should. We should. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a story that my mother, that I knew about my mother, that in times when she was having a tough time before she met my dad, she would, you know, be down. And she knew that her girls always attracted attention. Mm. And so she, on one particular night, dressed us up in our Sunday's finest, did our hair. The shoes are shining. The skin is well hydrated. We're looking great to just go to the local Alpha Beta, which was a grocery store mm-hmm. locally. And we would go in, and she had no money, and she was feeling down about that, and she would buy a bag of chips or a six-pack of gum or a six-pack of sodas for us. And we would go in, and she just walked the aisles getting those few items. And as she would go, people would comment, oh my gosh, look at those girls. Oh, those girls, what's your name? And it would make her feel happy. And it would make her feel good. And it would make her feel valued. And these are all things that, you know, as a single mom at that time, she needed. And so when I went to my mom and I said, I want to try to make a short, I need to think of something I can do all in one location. Yeah. She told me that. She reminded me of that story, which I knew. Had you forgotten it? I had forgotten it. 
Yeah, yeah. And, I, and certainly in experiencing, I didn't know that that's what was happening for her. Or the rhyme or reason. Yeah. Um, but when she explained that to me, I thought, wow, that's just poignant and powerful. And so I made a short about it. When I read about that, again, I couldn't see it. So I started to imagine it. Mm-hmm. And I, I started to imagine what conditions would make someone want to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, you know, as someone who was the oldest of uh, two other siblings, mm-hmm. with a mom that had intermittent stepfathers, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, actually, I think I can remember something like this. Mm-hmm. But it comes in all sorts of shapes and all sizes kinds and of forms. Yeah, I understand you forgot that that had happened, but that feeling of being down—did you ever notice that about your mom as a kid? I didn't very much. I mean, that's something that she really shielded from us. Um, you think purposefully? Oh, for sure. I mean, when I think about what it took to make sure that we did not feel her her struggle, mm. I applaud her. And then she met my dad, and, you know, things really changed. And the family expanded, and, you know, there was a lot of more light and love with him around. I'm thinking about the compliments she received mm. when she's walking down the mm-hmm. the aisle. And all the compliments she probably received when she started telling her friends that you were going to go to UCLA. (laughs) And I think it's in that period. I could be wrong, but I think it's in that period. You're around 19 years old that you have what you've called your first glimpse into the life of an artist. Every Thursday night at the Good Life Health Food Store on Adams and Crenshaw. Oh, gosh. You would take part in an open mic run by a woman named B. Hall. <laughs> what did that glimpse into that life look like? Down to the streets. Pretty good. What did it feel like if it was a different world? You know, my Aunt Denise, you know, really gave me a love of movies as a admirer of art. I know that she had dreams of being an artist, but she worked as a nurse. And she is, like many people, does not practice art for a living. And so she lived an artful life, and there was no one in my family that that worked in that way or did anything like that. So to actually go into a space with all young people who are declared artists, I am an artist, this is what I do. What was the art form? They were MCs, and they were the best. And they took pride in it, and they practiced it, and they were deliberate. And to walk in and feel that energy and that drive and that, like, an, a quest for excellence mm. in emceeing uh, that was so serious that there would be battles in the parking lot, no weapons, only the words that would cut sharp coming out. I mean, just incredible artistry. And that energy, I just thought, wow, this is something. I want to be a part of it. And I don't just want to watch. So you got on stage? I got on stage. I think we should take a listen to what that sounded like. Oh my gosh, don't you dare. Oh, we are. No! Oh, yes, we are. This is Alpha and Omega by Figures of Speech. Oh my gosh. Figures of Speech, oh, Figures of Speech, the queens are speaking to figure it out. Alpha, Omega, it's the era of the woman. Figures of Speech, oh, Figures of Speech, the queens are speaking to figure it out. Alpha, Omega, to me, all things begin. Figures of speech, oh, figures of speech, the queens are speaking, so figure it out. Alpha, Omega, preserve the essence of the system. Figures of speech, oh, figures of speech, the queens are speaking, so figure it out. Alpha, Omega, preserve the essence of the system. Fig
Ava, um, when that song came on and the rap started, you started mouthing all the words. <laughs> Did I? It's so funny. I haven't heard that played in years and years and years. It was such a beautiful time. It was a fun time. It was a time of, of just, because uh, I, I was 19, 20, had never written anything, had never performed, had never been on stage, didn't know anyone who did it. It was a very male environment, like mostly men, and to be there with my partner, Rhonda, and to create a group called Figures of Speech and to get on stage on this open mic night and try to perform and express myself in poetry. And it's just like, what am I doing? I don't know, but let's try. What do you hear when you hear that now? My voice is very, very much changed. It was very high. What happened? People always ask me, are you a smoker? No, I've never smoked. I don't know. I just had a, had some tough years. But no, I what I hear, I think um, I like it. I like who that person was. I think she would never imagine what's going on now. You described your aunt as an artist. She had an artist's heart. Mm -hmm. Was it somewhere around that time where you're emceeing that you too felt like you had an artist's heart? Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think so because although I felt like I I enjoyed it all when I graduated from UCLA and then I went into a, a regular job, it wasn't painful. I never thought that I would be able to sustain it or that I could or should or would or wanted to. There are people in that scene that still are making amazing music to this day. Like, that's their primary thing. Their job is the second thing, and the first thing that moves them is the music. Mm. For me, it was, it was never quite that, because for me, it wasn't music. It was movies, you know? So I liked the social aspect. I liked doing it, but, but it wasn't kind of my heart's song. So was getting into film publicity a kind of bridge between these two? It seemed more practical? Yeah, it was a job. That, it's the job I could get out of out of college, which I think that's what a lot of people end up doing is whatever job they could get out of college. Um, so, yeah, that was the job that I got out of college, and it was uh, it was a PR position at a, at a little studio. I loved it. I loved being a publicist. And then you created your own company. Yeah, I really, really loved it. You're a publicist starting in, like, 96. Mm. You work on small projects, huge projects. You go on the sets of Clint Eastwood movies, Spielberg movies, Bill Condon, all these filmmakers. But it's not until 2003-ish area where you find yourself back in South Central on the set of the movie Collateral, directed by Michael Mann. What about Mann and that project offered a window into the world you knew you needed to be part of? Mm -hmm. My firm was small and successful. I was saving for a house. You know, I had about three employees. I was doing really well. Yeah. I started when I was 27, and I uh, was doing better than I ever thought. And then I was on the set of, of Michael Mann's Collateral, and it was Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett and... 
young Javier Bardem and Mark Ruffalo, and they were using digital cameras. Michael Mann was shooting with digital cameras, which I'd never seen. Mm. There are going to be people out there like, never seen? What is this, 1946? The, but truly— The early 2000s. The early, thanks, guys. The early 2000s. That's when we started to see them. Like a Viper or something on yeah, Sony? Yeah, it was a Viper, yeah. Oh. And, um, and I was watching him working with them and trying to figure him out and all the cool things that it could do and how fast it could move and, and how fast you could set it up and get a shot going and all that stuff felt like it's a new energy on set. And so that, plus being, like you said, he was shooting in South Central and East L.A. and Watts and a lot of places that I was familiar with. I thought, wow, if he can do that with these big stars and bring them down here and shooting on these inexpensive cameras, then, I don't know, maybe maybe I can try it too. There was something about being on that set that just fascinated me. You know, I just had a conversation with him. I saw. And I've gotten to know him over the years, and he's been very kind to me, but it always is a little surreal to me. That's the moment that I trace it to, mm-hmm. is watching him. That moment, it took you being in your early 30s to go, I got to do this. I'm fascinated because you went to UCLA and there was a whole L.A. rebellion movement in Charles Burnett and, and Julie Dash that came out of that very school. And yet it doesn't sound like they or their trajectories offered a template that you wanted to follow. It wasn't until that moment with that director on that set. I know it's odd. I mean, I, I went to a school that has a bold, incredible tradition yeah. of the Black independent filmmaker community is yes. grown out of UCLA, and I was there. You can see why I'm confused. Missed it. Missed Didn't it. see it. It was a couple decades before me. It was, yeah, two decades before me. And there was no, in my sphere, amplification of the fact that it had even been there. It's much different now. It's a part of the legacy of the school, and it's in the archives, and it's, it's celebrated. But I did not know about it. Certainly, it speaks to a cinema segregation. I grew up in Compton. There's no movie theater in Compton, so there's no independent film showing there. And those films by those filmmakers didn't even have distribution where they would be widely seen. So how would one know? Unfortunately, I'll have to also break it to your audience that the Internet was not prominent at that time. There were things called libraries and library cards if you wanted to learn things you did not know. And so as a student, I'm focusing on what I'm doing, all to say and justify the fact that I missed it. I did not have a wide awareness that that was there. You rest your case. We got it. I'm so sorry. I wonder what that says, though, about that those filmmakers— weren't pronounced mm-hmm. at UCLA. Yeah, You went to school in the early 90s, not in 1980, not in 1974. Yeah, You graduated in like 94. Yeah, What does that say? I mean, it, it, it could just be me. Maybe I missed it. There was a lot so. going on at that time. I was there in 92. What 90- was happening in LA in the early 92, 90s? Right, you know, 92 was, was a lot of what they call unrest. And um, who calls it that? The people who have Previously been resting. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was uh, it was an intense time and the focus was uh, in a different place. And yeah, no, but I also I just think the amplification and the celebration of that group of that cadre of filmmakers has been somewhat recent. Thank God for that. Yeah. You didn't pick a camera up until you were 32. Your first narrative feature film is a movie called I Will Follow. It's about a woman packing up her aunt's home, an aunt who had just died of breast cancer. Your aunt, who we've been talking about, she passed away in 2003, I think it was. 
And it's fascinating because the opening act of Origin finds your main character packing up a house again, grieving. And I was reminded of your first movie and watching this this latest one. But when you think back on that 14-day shoot, $50,000 that you were going to use for a home, but instead you used for this movie, what kind of director do you think you were on that first project? Wow, what a question. And thank you for seeing the the symmetry between the two films. Um, oh, I was terrified. <laughs> I was a terrified director. Oh, I was there. Because I was working with, you know, a, a lot of times when people are making their first independent films, they're working with young actors or newer actors. Like, everyone's new in the movie. Mm. And I had been a publicist, and so I knew some actors who had done things. And so... My actors were trained actors who were working on real sets, and this certainly was far from that. I think about what they saw, what they walked into, and what they thought. And I'm grateful that they actually continued and took me seriously. And also, I was a publicist, and they knew me as that. So, mm. you're a publicist now? Okay, she's a publicist. She asked me to be in a movie. What does it mean? Like, how are you— why would you even do it? Well, Blair what? Underwood is in both, <laughs> right? He called me out of the blue yesterday. It was so strange and beautiful. He called me out of the blue and he said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm good, Blair. I'm good. How are you? You know, how's everything going? How's the family? How's the holidays? He said, how are you? You've been on my mind. Like, what's going on with Origin? How are you? Okay. And I said, I'm not okay. <laughs> broke down. But um, he's, you know, someone who was a big star, in a very small movie, fifty thousand dollars. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Five zero thousand dollars from start to finish. That means craft services and lunch is a bag of Doritos on the table on the folding table. Mm-hmm. Like there's no going to El Pollo Loco for for like everyone gets one burrito. There's no nothing for nothing. And um, and he came and did his part and he treated me like a real director. Why do you think he did? He's a nice man. No. Uh, He may be a nice man. He is a nice man. Come on. I think uh, he might have saw a passion. I think think people are attracted to passion. And I was definitely passionate about it. I think that's the only reason, you know, I stopped by the set of a young filmmaker a couple years ago before I was swept away in Origin World and uh, stopped by the set because this young woman was talking to me so passionately about her short. She was shooting that weekend and do I have any advice? And just her eyes were shining bright and I was like, well, where are you shooting? Where is it? Give me your call sheet. And I just stopped by because I just wanted to see what she was doing because the woman was just passionate. And people are attracted to that. Mm. The authenticity of passion. If it's real, you know, you it, it's a magnet. After the break, A conversation about where that passion took our guest and the decade that followed. That's all coming up next with Ava DuVernay. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member FDIC. 
The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you released the film in 2010, 2011, it was hard to release independent movies back then. It's hard to release them now. But back then, one of the ways in which people would find the movie is by way of film critics, Mm -hmm. mainly if Roger Ebert wrote about it. I reread the review last night, Mm -hmm. and I have it here, and I thought perhaps you may want to read from the final two paragraphs of the piece. Wow. If you're open to it. Oh, good. I will follow as an invitation to empathy. It can't have a traditional three-act structure because every life closes in death and only supporting characters are left on the stage at the end. What goes unsaid but not thought is that we will all pass away this way eventually. Amanda's family is African-American. The neighbor and some of the visitors are white. Why do I mention race? I wasn't going to. This is a universal story about universal emotions. Maybe I mention it because this is the kind of film black filmmakers are rarely able to get made these days. Offering roles for actors who remind us here of their gifts. Damn it. I told you I was going to cry. Coleman told me. Coleman told me you're going to cry. I was like, cry. I don't even know what this is. (laughs) I don't know why that made me emotional. But it did. And there's a lot. Why? Mm-hmm. I probably pulled it because <laughs> Roger was the one who wrote to me when I was 17. Really? I'm from Chicago. Wow. There are so many lines in those two paragraphs. Yeah. yeah. Every life closes in death, and only supporting characters are left on stage at the end. But it seemed to me that the line that got you was the, because this is the kind of film black filmmakers are rarely able to get made these days. Yeah. So funny how both of those lines 
really figure into origin because, you know, origin is so much about grief and loss. And then also the process of getting it made and the process of even still trying to share it right now. You know, it's a, it's a journey. And it's a journey that has its own specific trajectory because it is a film made by a black filmmaker. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, that, that hit hard. Thank you. He was such a loom so large in my path to even being in this chair. Mm. You know, he put a lot of light on that film that, you know, during a time when no one was looking at it, no one was looking in my direction. Yeah. And because he did, other people looked. And it's just the power of one voice. I guess I'm wondering, when you read that, are you thinking about your response to Blair on that phone call? Mm, a little. A little, maybe, yeah. I feel like in a vulnerable place with this movie. Why is that? Uh, because I did it all so that it could be heard and it's not being heard and seen. And uh, I made mistakes along the way on some of the decisions, you know, that I, I have a hard time forgiving myself for in terms of its ability to reach people. I'm doubting, you know, should I have waited? You know, should I have waited till next year? Should I have? It's all the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, and it, and it is unhealthy and it moves nothing forward it's it's a dead wasted energy but I've, so I've been working really hard to pull myself out of it and I, and I think I'm I'm in a place where I am moving out of it the holidays were really really helpful just to be quiet and not to be going 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 and I feel like I've turned a corner and I'm moving out but I, I still mourn the fact that I even got that sad about it that I got beat myself up that much about it I wish I hadn't you know, I've always felt because I was a marketer and a publicist that the filmmaking isn't over until I've finished the marketing and publicity. That's right. right. By the way, most people don't feel that no, way. No, they most hand it off. don't feel that way. Well, because they don't know that part of it, right? I'm fortunate to know that piece, so I am involved in that. And so I'm still making the film as I present it. And so I'm just going to keep pushing and keep fighting and, and keep working to try to get it exposed. Can we go to something that I, I want to I wanna hit on? You and I don't know each other. No. Really at all. No. And I have to say, this is the first time I've seen you be vulnerable in an interview. And as you've seen, I have looked at every damn interview. <laughs> and I bring this up because I think you had a response to something I also had a response to, which is that this past year, the woman who I think we all regard as maybe the best at what she does in Beyonce. Mm put a film out called Renaissance. And after you went to the premiere, you posted on Instagram stories mm -hmm. where you said the film spoke to you in a unique way that it captured something about being second-guessed, being gaslit, the level of difficulty always being high when you're trying to run something. And I want to know what about her experience reflects your own over these past 10 years. Hmm, interesting. Well, I saw the film, I love the film, as a film, as a craft of filmmaking. And then she's making a film about, she's making a piece of art about another piece of art. And she's the, the centerpiece of both. It's just... Astonishing. It's, it's something else. And the fact that it, just, it, didn't get the, it didn't get the light, it didn't get all, all that, it's fine. It's not fine, I'm sure it's very painful. But the piece in it that connected with me, it was a spectacle of like, her beauty and her talent and her her ingenuity and then the, you know she's putting all the pieces together in the film and you see the the process on stage but it was just a, a moment where she chose to show some people telling her 
that something that she knew was true wasn't true because it was easier for them not to do the thing. Collaborators. Yeah, but it's Beyonce, okay? She's Beyonce. This tour is called Beyonce. This van you're riding on is Beyonce. The stadium says Beyonce. Like, how do you even form your mouth to look her in the eye and tell her what she knows to be true is not true or to lie to her and tell her it can't be done? And in that moment, I felt so seen because I cannot tell you how many times it happens. I'm experiencing it recently. You experienced it on this film. I experienced it on this film post-making the film, right? Mm -hmm. So making the film was a joyous experience. There's many, many walks of life over my time where, you know, you're you're in a space, and and sometimes I'll just look and I'll say, poor thing, you actually think this thing you're saying is going to work. Like, you actually think you're going to convince me or move me off my path. Do you say that or you think that? I I think it in my head. I say it to myself. There will be a day where I just say that out loud. But literally, I I can just, I've perfected the stare Mm -hmm. at someone as they're talking, but I'm thinking, you're wrong and it's never going to work. There's nothing you can say. And so to see her at the pinnacle Mm. um, actually put that in a film, I felt like it was a mirror. I felt like I wasn't alone in that thought. Right. And it's not that no one can ever disagree with you. It is a, a purposeful, like, determined attempt to deter. And uh, it hit home for me. You've said before that your directing style was modeled after your mother. Mm. She had a stare, I think. <laughs> she had right? a stare, yes. Definitely had a stare, yes, yes. Like the one you just gave you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, because you don't need to say anything else. There were no belts. There were no switches. There were no spankings. There was none of that. There was, it was barely even punishment, like go to your room. It was just, oh my God, mom looked at me with that look. And that was enough to make me and my sisters wither into pieces. You know, when you watch Beyonce's film and you said, they're doing that to her? Mm -hmm. How could they do that to her? You know, there are a lot of people listening to this right now that are thinking they said that to her Mm -hmm. they said that to you yeah i mean it happens it happens i think i think you know this is the time when i start to think about caste is that because i'm a woman is it because i'm black is it because i'm a black woman at the base of it it's because my value is seen in a certain way in that dynamic And so whether or not Beyonce is writing your check, if inside your head, your body, your sense memory, your experience, you feel like you are superior to her, it does not matter if she's paying you. It does not matter if your job is to make her dreams come true. Fundamentally, I am better than you, and I will say what I want to say. And I will direct you in the way that I want to direct you. Mm. And that is a very kind of fundamental understanding of caste, the ranking of human value in any particular space. Because how would one form their mouth, you know, to to negate the the instincts, the objective, the dream, the the suggestion of another person? out of hand without any thought and so dismissively that means you don't you don't have that respect you don't have that you don't value them so that that that's that's um like kind of all tied up together it's something i hadn't thought of until now that hierarchy that exists within film 
Oh, within any, with anywhere. The instance that she had 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 shown on her on in her film right. was a was a music space, but it right. could be any space. But for you, on film sets, or after in post production, I had no issues on my film itself. On this film, on this, I have not had any issue almost on any. Um, let me see, really, any film? No, because I control who is on the set, and uh, and I understand what I need to thrive. Mm. And I want, you know, healthy criticism and I want pushing and I want all, all of us reaching, but I, I won't be disrespected. Mm. And so if that's happening, you you won't be there. Mm. Um, and if somehow you slipped in, you won't be there long. <laughs> you won't be there long. So 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 I don't really experience it in that space because I control that space. But once the film leaves the set and leaves the production. Something else happens. Something else happens. It goes into a studio system. It goes into a distribution system. It goes into those spaces. And now you're dealing with... Folks that, you know, are going to do what they're going to do. No, we can fight back against that. But I want to wrestle with this a little bit because we're sitting here at the top of 2024 where you very intentionally three years ago knew you wanted to be sitting with this film. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know what they're going to eat for dinner tonight. (laughs) You knew this. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting post this historic double labor strike where we've already seen a contraction in budgets, development deals. Diversity initiatives, programs designed for young filmmakers looking for mentors like yourself. Mm-hmm. That's already happened and it's already been contracting mm-hmm. since the strike was resolved in the fall. There was a recent report from USC that found 116 directors attached to 100 top grossing films in 2023. 14 of them were women. Four of them were women of color. The gains in representation, as per usual, have been overstated to say the least. And yet, I have here quote after quote from film executives in this industry in the New York Times in the paper of record saying things like, for three years we hired nothing but women and people of color. Indeed, there was an overcorrection. I can go on Who and said that? on. Yeah, they're all anonymous, as oh, you can okay, imagine. I was say, did someone put their name to that? No one put their name to it. But I'm voicing yeah. it here. Yeah, yeah. Because I know you've had conversations with People in your life, maybe some friends of ours, where there is a fear of backsliding, where there's a fear broadly in this country of reverting to a kind of conservatism. Mm-hmm. How do you make sense of this moment? You know, I'll have to say I'm probably not doing it in the way that that is the most. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure about the way that I how to define how I'm doing it now. All I know is that I feel like I'm tapping out. I've tried to work within the system for the last 10 years. I've sat on the boards of Sundance. I am DGA board. I am I am a governor of the academy in my second term. I really wanted to learn. I wanted to understand how these institutions worked. And there's some great people there and beautiful legacy. But ultimately, the shifts and the cumulative effect of this, like how the overall industry works are so insignificant in their uh, velocity, in their scope, in their real impact, that I feel like, you know what, I've done what I could because it was a lot. It's a lot of extra time, a lot of extra effort, a lot of calls, a lot of meetings, a lot of thinking, a lot of trying. And it's time to pass the baton to someone else who has a fresh energy and who wants to take and, I, and we did, I've achieved some things within those organizations that I'm proud of. But for me, it's just not um, 
it's not moving at a pace that feels worth my time and effort. And I'm going to put my time and effort into what I've continued to do, but it needs to have all my time and effort, which is building array, building independent systems, building disruptive, disruptive systems, and to put my focus on, on um, a garden that will actually grow and blossom. I feel like I'm tilling ground that I'm like an old pioneer on a bad plot. <laughs> it's like I've got my little house on the prairie and I'm trying to move this thing forward. I'm going to build another house. I'm going to go over to the house that I've built on my own and focus on that. That's, my, that's where I am today. Mm-hmm. Like, I did it all. And, and I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to go over here and make my movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how I feel right now. Okay. Do you think I'm going to do it? You look I, like you don't believe me. I make it a habit to believe people who come on this show. Okay, good. And I certainly would make it a habit to believe you. Do I think you're tapping out? I think you'd have to define tapping out for me. Because what you just described, make more movies, run a company, something about gardening I was trying to follow, <laughs> uh, doesn't sound like tapping out. Tapping out of the Hollywood industrial complex. Okay. and That's, that's what I, more that's, specific. That's what I want to understand. Yeah. I've never heard you say I'm tapping out. Not to, of Of the way in which I've been working, yes. which is really trying to be kind of a you know, push forward a certain new framework for the way in which certain institutions mm-hmm. that, you know, embody our industry work. You said it didn't move fast enough. Yeah. It didn't accomplish the things you wanted. What did it not do anything. that you thought it would do? Anything. Anything. You no. think you've done nothing to no, help? I think I've done things to help, but th- those are isolated incidents that are not... Anomalies. Yes. Complete aberrations. Yes. The system itself. Yes. Irretrievable, can't be fixed. Sure it can, but it needs cooperation. It needs people to want to do it, and this town does not want to do it. Here's my fear, mm-hmm. is that if you couldn't do it... But I'm just one person. It needed right. more. It needed more people. That's right. Okay. It needed more people. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people I know trying that. for it. I know that. But there's, there's not, not enough. Can I ask you then, maybe yeah. this is maybe more specific then, what does it say about the industry mm-hmm. and your trajectory in it and all the experiences you're talking about and not talking about, what does it say about the industry that you went through it and where you've landed with this new film is philanthropy? Well, you say philanthropy like it's a dirty word. I'm not saying it's a dirty word. I'm saying it's a model to be replicated. Mm-hmm. Why not? I don't I don't know. Does Melinda Gates and Jobs and another woman, collectively they're worth north of $24 billion dollars. Do I think they're going to keep financing movies? I, I guess I'm wondering where you how you stand on all that, how you make sense of this. I think that... Um, I mean, I agree. This sounds great. I would love 10 more origins. I mean, it's not possible, but... <laughs> Look, I'm not the first independent filmmaker, and I'm certainly not the first filmmaker that's made a big film that's decided I, I'm going to make films a different way. Yes. I'm going to make smaller films. I'm going to take my, less money and have more flexibility. Man, look at Soderbergh. I mean, he's just that's like, right. I'm out. Thank you. I'm going to do it over here this way. So you're out like Soderbergh. <laughs> <laughs> he's still around. He's doing this thing, but he's doing it his way and he doesn't care about that other stuff. I respect it. You know, I have to care about it a lot less. You know, I, I think on origin, one of my challenges is that I'm caring way too much for a lot of things that just don't care back. And I need to care about building systems and structures that lend itself to the kinds of things I want to do. That's right. You can't make Chinese food in the Italian restaurant. 
he rolled his eyes. He's like, I know what you're getting at, but that's a bad analogy. I was going to say, I was, I was, I was like, thinking, you don't have the right, you don't have the right ingredients, but actually you do. You no, can do it. I was going to say, I think uh, Cheesecake Factory disagrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. Um, you know what I mean. Of course like, I know Like, if you, you want to do a certain thing, you're in a place. And I think that I started, and I was like, oh, this place can change. Like, Pete, there are people here. This is a liberal town. Like, it'll change. Mm. And there, there have been some beautiful things that happened. But my success is not change. What does that mean? My success is not change. Nia DaCosta's success, Gina Prince-Bythewood suggests, when you can name us all on two hands, mm. and when you read a stat like the one you just read, that's not change. That's a few lovely things that happen to a few people. And for me, that's not worth it. I would rather just try to build something sustainable and beautiful and smaller and lovely in my own likeness with people who think like me. And in and, and some ways, I think, ah, is that small-minded? Is that just closing ranks? But at some point, it just becomes what's healthy. I don't think it's small-minded. Oh, I'm glad. I don't want to feel like I'm giving up on something. I don't. I, I feel like I'm um, reaching for something new. Before we go, when you say you want to create something independent or, or left of center or something adjacent to the industry on your own, you've obviously created a whole lot. What does that look like for you? How are you starting to dream again? And what do those dreams look like? Well, luckily, I've been at the same time that I was, you know, working within these industry spaces, I was also building Array. So Array is, you know, over a decade old, it is a, a distribution company. It is a, we distribute films from, by women and filmmakers of color. We have public programming for free for the community all around cinema. We have a four building campus in Echo Park where we edit and we ideate and we educate and we do all kinds of beautiful things. We work against uh law enforcement brutality and aggression through our program called LEAP. We've created Array Crew, which is a database that has, you know, thousands and thousands of crew members from all kinds of communities that you can um, search and hire. We've done things that I'm very proud of and very bolstered by and ignited by, and I have given that 70% of my attention and given 20% to these other places, and now that's just going to be 100%. And mm. I imagine if it has my full focus, gosh, what can we do? Do you still want to make films? Oh, absolutely. It's just the industry around the films. Mm. You know, it's 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 uh, it's something that you have to be uh, you have to be prepared for, you have to be mindful of, and you have to actively participate in. And we can decide how much we participate and how much we don't. And there are other ways to make films and there are other ways to reach people. Mm. And those are worthy endeavors to try to figure out. This film, because it is part of an industry and it is coming out right now as we speak, I'm thinking about this line that Angela Davis has that she told you about your own movies. She said, all of your work helps to create fertile ground. I don't think that we would be where we are without your work and the work of other artists. In my mind, it's art that can begin to make us feel what we don't necessarily yet understand. Mm. When you hear that from her about these films that you have brought into this world, that you have given your life to, that I know you have put all of yourself and all of your time into, does it feel worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely worth it. 
absolutely exactly what I want to do. And I need to focus on that even more and let the rest of the stuff go. And when you read that quote back to me, I remember at the time being very ignited by it. And, you know, life gets in the way and you forget. I I remember that Roger Ebert quote meant so much to me. And I forgot those lines. You know, they just hit my heart. And it's like those are the things that remind you of what you're doing it for, why you're doing it, and what matters. But it's so easy to lose track of it. You know, what this experience with Origin has taught me is when you focus on the good and you walk towards that light and you're focused on your intention and your purpose, you are going the right way. When you're dealing with all this other crap, you get off kilter. And, you know, I have to try to find a path that keeps me towards my goals. Mm. And I need to define what those goals are. And this morning, a good friend of mine, Nisi Nash Betts, texted me. And Who's she, in the film. He's in the film. She texted me and she said, friend, how are you? How you doing? You feeling better? You feeling good? And I said, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And she said, well, just, you know, keep looking for God everywhere. Just count your blessings. And so she sent me a text with a bunch of things that happened today. My coffee was came out perfect, and I landed at the thing on time, and this and this. And so <laughs> then I, I wrote her out, my, my, my little blessings. I found the perfect shape of Spanx in the back of my drawer. <laughs> I got to the thing on time. The a really sweet lady said she wanted to take a selfie because she loved Queen Sugar, and her husband loved it too. Like, and I started writing down these pieces, and it mm. reminded me of just all the good and all of the grace and all of the the gratitude that should envelop us. Why not say, I'm going to tap out on the rest and I'm going to focus on that. And that's, uh, that's how I feel today. Well, I hope this conversation makes it on that long short list because um, it has been a long time in the making and um, I'm so grateful that you have come in and shared all that you have beyond the movies. Um, This conversation has meant a whole lot to me. This conversation is the highlight of my list today. You've said things. You've reminded me of things. You've uh, connected the dots for me on a lot of things I've been thinking for the last few weeks. And you're a blessing. Thank you. Ava DuVernay. (laughs) Until next time. Thank you. find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. 
Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple. You can share the program on social media. Tag us at TalkEasyPod. We'll be sure to repost you. Every little bit does help and uh, ensures that we can continue making this show each and every Sunday. I want to give a special thanks this week to the teams at Lead PR, Ginsburg Libby, and Neon. I want to give a special thanks today to two friends of the show, Coleman Domingo and Kishori Rajan. I also want to thank our guest, Ava DuVernay. Ava's new film, Origin, is in wide release starting January 19th. To get tickets, and you will want to get tickets, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There on the site, we've also included more info about Ava, Array, and all the rest. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend our talks with Tessa Thompson, Steven Soderbergh, Jelani Cobb, Natasha Leone, and John Bernthal. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janix Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Our photographs are by Julius Chu. Research assistance by Shreya Aronke. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, Greta Cohen, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of 2024. We'll be back with a new talk next Sunday. Until then, stay safe and so long.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 